So let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of all mercy. I pray that we would understand that more deeply. Um, someone has said that there's not a, a uh, thought that needs to be repeated more often than the idea that our acceptance with you is based solely on your love for us. And there's nothing we can do to make you love us any more or any less. And so may we just continue to be uh, convinced of that reality is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So I picked up just recently a classic book that has now been 80 years in print. It first came out, well, it's been over 80 years. It first came out in about 1934 or so. It just had a, f- a few thousand copies that were originally printed, and then for some reason it just caught like wildfire, and it's been printed ever since. Millions and millions of copies sold. Perhaps some of you have read it, and I just started reading it the other day. Has any of you read this book, How to Win Friends and Influence People? Let me see your hands again. How many of you have read Okay, more than I was expecting. How to Win Friends and Influence People. Have you guys mastered that art, those of you who have read it? So as I said, I've been reading it this week just out of curiosity, and I I think by now some of the ideas may be so ingrained in our culture that we just know them already. So when you read it, you're like, oh yeah, I know this, I know this. But it's good to be reinforced. But I was reading the second chapter, and I noticed these words in particular, which I thought they, they intersected so well with what we've been talking about last week and then what we're going to talk about this week. And these are the words that begin chapter 2 of this book by Dale Carnegie. Notice the words. There is only one way under high heaven to get anybody to do anything. Did you ever stop to think of that? Yes, just one way. And that is by making the other person, what's the word? Want to do it. Now, I would maybe update it a little bit because you can't make anybody do anything, even you can't make them want to do anything. But the principle, nevertheless, is, is what's important. The only way that anybody will ever do anything is if they want to do it. He goes on to say, remember, there is no other way. Of course, you can make someone want to give you his watch. Now, I would again question with the vocabulary here. But you can make someone want to give you his watch by sticking a revolver in his ribs You can make your employees give you cooperation until your back is turned by threatening to fire them. You can make a child do what you want it to do by a whip or a threat. But these crude methods have sharply, what does he say, undesirable repercussions. The principle he's drawing at here is, again, I wouldn't say that you can make somebody want to do something by sticking a gun in their ribs, but you can at least get them to do it. Whether they actually want to do it is another story. But he goes on to say, the only way I can get you to do anything is by giving you what you want. So this is the principle. And we we started unpacking this a bit last week, where we were talking about how God is so willing to allow us the freedom to choose that he will never force our will. And all false religions are based on the idea of seeking to control other people. And we use all sorts of tactics. We use threats. 
we use coercion, we use manipulation in the religious world, we especially use guilt and shame, where we guilt people or we try to shame them into doing things that we want them to do. But God will never, ever use these tactics. In fact, what God is seeking to do is he's trying to, if we could, we could put it in these terms, God is trying to win friends. And he realizes that the only way to do it is by love. We looked at this idea last week, and I didn't put the quote back up here, but this author put it this way, only by love is love awakened. And when love is poured into our hearts, we respond with an echo of love, and then it flows over to other people. And so religion, that is true religion, based upon the God of Scripture, always respects people's freedom to choose, always respects people's freedom of conscience. And God seeks to win us by love, not by threat or force. Well, there's a story this morning that we're going to look at that perhaps some of you have read before, some of you have perhaps heard before, some of you have even sung before. And that is a story by the man by the name of Zacchaeus. Every time I preach on Zacchaeus, I almost feel like a little funny because it feels like it's a little kid's story. But it's in Scripture, and it's so significant in its message. And so please don't disengage. You know the story. Many of you do. Some of you don't. But don't disengage if you've already heard it before or sung about it before because it's a powerful, powerful story of this idea of love being awakened. So we're going to pick up the story. It's, it's recorded in the book of Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. I'm going to put the words up here for you from the message version. But the story goes like this. Then Jesus entered and walked through Jericho. Jericho was a significant city in those days during the the times of Jesus. And so he was going through the city of Jericho, and there was a man there. His name was, what was it? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. The man was Zacchaeus, and he was the head tax man. And already as we're reading the story, the plot thickens. Dun, dun, dun. He's a tax man. He's a taxman. The Beatles sang a song called The Taxman, right, Jim? Right? So he's a taxman. He's the head taxman. And he was quite rich. Now, some of you may already be familiar with this idea. And just from the biblical narrative, some of you, perhaps all of us, are familiar with it from our own context. How do we think about taxmen and women? Not too fondly, right? It's, you know, that, that. April 15 is coming right up in a couple of months, and so the tax, the tax bill is coming due. But in those days, it was even more dramatic what they thought about taxmen, they, especially in the Jewish context. And some of us were talking about this a little bit last night, but they absolutely despised these taxmen. They absolutely despised these tax collectors because they were Jewish, yet they were working for the Roman government. And if you worked for the Roman government as a Jew, you were a collaborator with the enemy. And so you were considered to be utterly impure and unclean. Notice what happens. It says, he, that is Zacchaeus, wanted desperately to see Jesus. 
but the crowd was in his way. We don't get a lot of backstory here about how Zacchaeus learned about Jesus. We don't know what he heard of Jesus, but there was something that Zacchaeus needed and wanted to see about Jesus. He was curious. His heart was being stirred. No doubt he heard stories that were being repeated going from village to village, and, and Jesus was like the superstar that was coming to town, and people wanted to see him. People wanted to hear him. People wanted to find out what he was all about. And so Zacchaeus desperately wanted to hear this, see this man, Jesus. And so he wanted to see him, but Zacchaeus was a, what was it? He was a short man. He was a wee little man, as we sing in the song. And he couldn't see over the crowd. I feel sorry for all those of you who are shorter. But he couldn't see over the crowd. So check out what Zacchaeus does. So he ran on ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree so he could see Jesus when he came by. And when Jesus got to the tree, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry down. Today is my day to be a guest in your house. And Zacchaeus scrambled out of the tree, hardly believing his good luck, delighted to take Jesus home with him, Everyone who saw the incident was indignant and they grumped. What business does he, that is Jesus, have getting cozy with this crook? Now, we have talked about this before and it's critical. And I know it sounds almost like a broken record. But scripturally, when you entered into somebody's home, it was a very, very dramatic telling thing that you were doing. And when you had a meal at somebody's house... It was an incredible declaration of your acceptance of that person. Now, the Pharisees had strict rules. The religious leaders had strict, strict rules. And again, I know I keep talking about this, but it's so critical. It's why we, as we are a church together, we talk about the table metaphor. It may not mean quite as much today as it did then, but we can still appreciate it. And that is we welcome everybody to sit at our table. We welcome everybody to share a meal with us. But see, in those days, it was so scandalous because what the Pharisees were worried about is making sure that everybody towed the line. Because they wanted to make sure that they were continuously chosen by God. And so the history of, of the Jewish people was they had at one point been brought into exile because they were not following the rules of the Old Testament scriptures. And so they said, we're going to get really serious. Again, I know I've shared this many times before, but we need to have it reinforced. They said, we're going to get really serious and we're going to keep the rules exactly as they're supposed to be kept so that God never unchooses us. And so they wanted to make sure that everybody around followed the rules because it was a serious matter because, again, they wanted to make sure that they continue to be God's chosen people. And so what they would go out is they would start looking at your table and saying, okay, what are you eating? Who, do you, who are you inviting to sit at your table? Who are you spending time with? Because what they believed was two things. If you are spending time with people who are not following the rules, you yourself would stop following the rules. The other thing that they believed was, if you hang out with somebody who does something wrong, you are basically saying to them, your behavior is okay. It doesn't matter what you're doing. And so these these religious leaders were saying, the way to make these people change is by pulling away from them and separating ourselves from them. 
That's why, and I, I know, I, again, I'm sounding like a broken record, but the word Pharisee literally means a separatist. That's what the word meant. It was somebody who separated themselves from other people as a way to, one, maintain their own holiness, and two, as a way to communicate to those other people that your behavior better change. Because I'm not going to spend time with you if your behavior doesn't change. And they thought that this was the way to get people to change their behavior. Have you ever encountered experiences like that? Where we say, you know what? As a way to get that person to change their behavior, I'm going to pull away from them. And because I want them to to do what I think they should do, if they're not going to do what I think they should do, I'm just going to pull away and I'm not going to be around them. You see, we do this a lot, whether intentionally We do this a lot in our own relationships where we pull away from people because their behavior is unacceptable to us. And as a way to get them to change their behavior, we're just going to separate from them. And so when Jesus goes in and he spends time with them, this completely disrupts their whole method of what they would call evangelism, what they would call winning people over to their case. If you're going in there and endorsing Sitting at their table, you're telling them that what they're doing is okay. But check this out. Check this out. Zacchaeus just stood there a little stunned. He stammered apologetically. He's, He's speaking to Christ. And he says, Master, I give away half my income to the poor. And if I'm caught cheating, I pay four times the damages. Zacchaeus is so overwhelmed by this act of, of non-condemnation, this act from Jesus where he comes in, Jesus comes in, and he sits at his table, and he fellowships with him, and he relates to him as a person who had value and worth. Regardless of his behavior, regardless of his decisions, regardless of his, his cheating ways, Jesus comes into his home, and he humbles himself, and he draws close to them. And Zacchaeus is so overwhelmed by this behavior. Zacchaeus doesn't sit there and say, well, I guess what I'm doing is okay. Yay, I can just keep being a cheat. No, Zacchaeus is so overwhelmed by it that, it, that he has a response of love in return. Now, now Zacchaeus does two things. He says, I'm going to give half of my goods away to the poor. And he says, and if I've, and I've, if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to pay four times the damages. That act that he did was actually in line with what the Old Testament required of him. The Old Testament actually said if you cheat somebody, if you take what's not yours, you not only restore it to them, but you restore it four times as much. And so Zacchaeus is following the, the laws of the Old Testament. The laws that God had given sprang up in his heart as something that he felt compelled to do. Love was awakened in his heart, and he said, I'm going I'm to do as the law asked me to do. But not only does he do that, the law nowhere says that you have to give half, away, half your income away to the poor, because as he was compelled, he went even above and beyond what the law required of him. You see, when, when, when the love of Jesus is poured into our hearts, when God's non-condemning grace gets implanted in our hearts, it doesn't say to us, oh, I guess I can just do whatever I want now. It doesn't matter. What actually happens is you and I find ourselves, by God's grace, doing the very things that we thought impossible to do before. 
And so when love is awakened in our hearts by God's grace, when we are there as Zacchaeus, and when we're expecting judgment, when we're expecting condemnation, when we're bracing ourselves for some sort of anger or wrath or vengeance, and yet Jesus walks in and he embraces us. There's nothing that is more healing to us. And it installs within our hearts this motive of love. You know, Paul, the apostle who later went to, to, uh, to the world and he shared this message about Jesus, he wrote these letters many times to different places that he had gone. And so he wrote one to a group in Corinth and he wrote one to a group in Ephesus. And he wrote, he wrote one to a group in Rome. And he was talking all about this, this, this grace that God has. And he was talking about all about this love that God has. And, and as he's writing this letter, he's anticipating that the people who are reading it are thinking to themselves, well, all this talk about God's love, does that mean that I don't have to keep the law anymore? Does that mean that I don't have to follow the rules anymore because God's going to love me no matter what I do? And so Paul, in anticipation of that, puts it this way in Romans chapter 3, verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? In other words, Paul's like, so, so if we're living by faith, does that mean we don't, have to, we don't have to follow the rules anymore? And so Paul's like, is that, is, that what, is that what the reality is? And what does he say? Certainly not. No way. On the contrary, we establish the law. What Paul is saying is that when love is awakened in our hearts, it doesn't get us off the hook from doing the right thing. It's what actually motivates us to do the right thing. And again, the things that we thought hard to do before, they now become easy because God's love has motivated us and implanted in our hearts, and we find ourselves doing the things that we found impossible to do before. And Paul says this over and over and over again as he's recounting the story of Jesus. And so as we think about and ponder and and meditate on God's love, it it actually produces this obedience in our lives. Because nothing reaches down so deeply into our core as knowing that we are loved by God. Knowing that we are accepted by God, it brings healing to us, and we find ourselves wanting to do those things that we had a hard time doing before. You see, as we talk about Adventism in a nutshell, we talk about the idea that God's law is something that he still asks us to keep. He still asks us to do. It hasn't been done away with. Paul will say many times. It's not been done away with. It has been fulfilled in Jesus, and he will fulfill that in us when we embrace his love. And so, you know, sometimes we've been accused. I've heard it many times before. We've been accused of being legalists. A legalist. You know what a legalist is? We throw that word around a lot. A legalist is thought of, oftentimes thought as, as somebody who who makes a big deal about keeping the law. And I think the shoe fits a lot of times. I'll just be honest with you. I remember sitting in this office a few, a few times with a, a gentleman who had his son in our school here. And uh, he was not of our faith. And he said to me, 
why do you Seventh-day Adventists just talk about the law all the time? That's all you talk about. And I thought, I, instead of trying to defend my particular community of faith, I said, you know what, you're right. We have for too long talked about trying to keep the rules. But what happens is when we dwell on the love of Jesus, those rules actually get fulfilled in our lives. And so let's talk about God's love. Let's talk about his grace. Let's talk about his mercy. Let's talk about his compassion. And then the law gets pulled in its train. It's not that we are freed from keeping the law. It's like, what would you say to your, if your spouse came up to you and said, you know what, honey, she says, or he says, I love you so much, and for that reason, I'm never going to do anything you want me to do. You think, what are you talking about? Like, what kind of love is this, right? What kind of love is this? At the same time, we would hate to have our spouse come up to us and say, you know what, honey, I don't feel loved by you, and I, I don't really like you, but I'm just going to do whatever you ask me to do. I mean, some of us are like, well, maybe. That doesn't sound like that bad a deal. <laughs> but if, like, if, if they did it for us, but you could tell that they were bitter, and that they were not happy about it, and they were just like, I'm just doing this so that someday maybe you'll, you'll love and appreciate me. Or I'm just doing this because someday I want to go on that vacation that you've promised. Like, that's not, that's not good either, right? But what God does is he sheds his love into our hearts, like he did with Zacchaeus. He embraces us. He says, come to my table. Come sit with me. Talk to me. Share with me your story. Share with me your pain. Share with me your grief, your joys. Share it all with me, and I'm not going to sit here and condemn you. And when we can experience that, we can experience that. We can reach new heights that were never possible before because we have a new motive. We have a new experience. We can reach new heights, and, and we, can, we can start doing those things that we had a hard time with before. We can start keeping the law. We can start being nice to others. We can start loving them as Jesus loved them. We can, we can embrace all the, all the laws that, that are in the Ten Commandments as we, by his grace, embraces love. You know, this last week, I had the privilege of interviewing, some of you already know perhaps, I had the privilege of interviewing James Moores. Most of you know James. I think he's one of our elders. He's not here today, and so he won't be embarrassed by me sharing this with you. But uh, I had the privilege of interviewing James um, for our podcast. And if you've not been paying attention to James's journey here the last few years, I would invite you to do so, because it's really awesome. He's going to be speaking uh, in a couple of weeks here for, uh, for church, for, his, uh, for a sermon. He's already shared his story, but he's going to do a sermon. So pray for James, right? Uh, but, you know, there's a few things that James said as I was interviewing that just totally excited me. He said, you know what? I've learned over the last year to never say no to God. He said, I'm asked to do something like when we asked him to be an elder, he's like, you talking to me? Like, are you talking about me? And uh, he said, but I've learned that I just need to say yes to God. Whatever God wants me to do, he's going to give me the strength to do it. And, you know, James, like the rest of us, by God's grace, is growing. And James isn't perfect, and I'm not perfect, and you're not perfect, and that's okay. God gives us permission to not be perfect. Isn't that pretty cool? 
But it's by that reality that allows us to grow up and, and mature in faith such that we can, by God's grace, live out his law of love. And so, you might be sitting here this morning and you're saying to yourself, I need to feel that love. I need to be embraced. I want to experience that non-condemnation. And you know, we as a church, of course, we're trying to be that as well. We're trying to provide that embrace. We're trying to invite people to the table. And we want you to know that just as God has loved us with this non-condemning, self-giving love, we want to pass that on to others. And as love is awakened in our hearts, we want to, sh- to share it with you so that love can be awakened in your heart. And you can find yourself just saying yes to God. Whatever he asks of you, whatever it is, whatever it is, because there's no greater joy than being on that journey with God, saying yes to him. It's, it's a wild ride, but it's so fun. And so what would it look like this week for you? What would it look like for you to say yes to God? What is he asking of you? What would obedience look like in your experience? What would it look like to, to keep the law? Not because you're trying to gain points with God, not because you're trying to gain points with other people, but simply because you are already loved, you are already embraced, you already have his acceptance. What would that look like for you? Right now we're going to sing a song that we like to sing often at the end of our time together, How Deep the